Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of Ray Bradbury. Today, we embark upon possibly the weirdest choice of our five novels that we are looking at, or rather our five books that we are looking at this semester. Let's All Kill Constance, Bradbury's very late game 2003 murder mystery-ish thing that Honestly, I only know because I stumbled across it and picked it up for a dollar once many, many years ago and read it and just wanted to try it again. Um, so if you think that there's anything smarter here than me just knowing this work and like deciding to talk about it because I'm more familiar with it than most of Bradbury's other recent works, yep, you've got me. That That's kind of where we're at here. Um, but at the same time, this suits our discussion. Um, Let's All Kill Constance is the logical endpoint for everything that we have been talking about so far. We are once again revisiting many of the themes that we've encountered elsewhere in, the, in Bradbury's work. We are once again seeing, as we did with Something Wicked This Way Comes, the, the sort of ultimate triumph of style over substance. Um, we are seeing Bradbury's pacing and complete disinterest for plotting, like, very much front and center. Um, the trouble is, and this is honestly the, the problem I kind of keep coming back to, um, it's kind of not a good book. Like, it's not bad. I, I don't even know how exactly to quantify it, but I kind of feel guilty for having, you know, prescribed it to all of my listeners and, and sort of implicitly recommended it as a, a kind of view of, of Ray Bradbury. Um, and I do find it interesting. I find it fascinating. And, you know, this is the second time that I've read it, and I am enjoying it, question mark? But the questions that I kind of closed my discussion with Something Wicked This Way comes are still haunting me here. I'm still left wondering about whether or not Bradbury has become that which once he hated, um, if he isn't, you know, implicitly sort of encouraging and promulgating a kind of insubstantial, you know, lifeless, stylized, but, in, but like, empty prose, just because he's been hanging around in, you know, corporate, publishing, Hollywood, the entire commercial side of literature and art for, at this point, many, many years. And honestly, as much as, you know, on the one hand, this was an accidental choice on my part, like it's just the one novel that I wrote, it is kind of perfect for talking about this topic. You can't help but talk about this topic. Um, as much as, you know, we, we should definitely be looking at the themes and we should definitely be looking at the characters, the fact that Bradbury chooses to write about 1960s Los Angeles um, after himself spending a great deal of time going from, you know, a sort of avant-garde, early new wave science fiction writer full of crazy wild ideas and a very new take on, you know, classic science fiction storytelling and material, he's become a writer for Hollywood. 
Um, he's written multiple movies. Most notably, he wrote like the, the Gregory Peck Moby Dick, uh, which is excellent, by the way. Go track that down. Um, he had his own show for a while, the Ray Bradbury Theater, which was basically his sort of answer to the Twilight Zone, where he basically just took his own short stories and turned them into, you know, 20-minute television episodes, uh, which I've yet to watch most of them, although my wife did get me the co collection uh, for my birthday this past year, so... I look forward to, to diving in there as well. Uh, but even more than that, he's been bumming around Hollywood and, and hanging around in, you know, movie and television world probably for as long as he's been a writer at this point. Like, or certainly longer than he was a writer back in the 1950s when he was first, you know, like churning out his really great works, all that stuff that we studied earlier on in our discussion. You know, like I said, The Martian Chronicles, Fahrenheit 451, and The Illustrated Man all came out within like two years of one another. Um, it is a practically miraculous career that Bradbury built basically overnight. And for the 50 years since then, because once again, Let's All Kill Constance is a product of 2003, for 50 years, Bradbury has been hobnobbing with producers and directors, working behind the scenes in Hollywood, and that's where he's been making his money. That's where most of his energies have been devoted. And that means that we're going to get a different Bradbury here than we have seen before. Like, even Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is very much a product of his, you know, interactions with Hollywood and, and the filmmaking world. You know, he said himself that the, the suggestion was both a product of an earlier short story he wrote and then, you know, turning it into a screenplay for Gene Kelly to peddle overseas and then finally, you know, turning it into a novel only to have it adapted into a screenplay again. Bradbury has gotten very comfortable in the fast-paced, hectic world of Hollywood filmmaking, and it shows here. Um, this novel is, in many ways, a love letter to Hollywood filmmaking. And at the same time, it's sort of unaware of its own role in doing that. Like, let's talk about this, because, again, like... That flash-in-the-pan, style-over-substance thing is haunting us, but let's sideline it for the moment and talk about what Bradbury is actually writing about here when he decides to take a novel that he writes in 2003 and set it in Hollywood 1963. Because that's an interesting choice, um, to say the least. And honestly, I don't know too much about the Hollywood landscape in 1963 besides what I've heard from other Hollywood bigwigs, i.e., you know, this is a little before the period that Quentin Tarantino is depicting in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, this is roughly around the same period in time, I think a little later than what the Coens depict in, in Hail Caesar. Um, it is a weird transitional moment in Hollywood's history. Uh, as television is becoming more and more mainstream, Hollywood is trying to figure out what its role in the American popular culture and popular consciousness actually is. And the 60s were very much a transitional time from the great, you know, like crowd-pleasing musicals of the 1950s into the sort of big blockbuster roadhouse musicals of the 1960s. Um, you have, you know, a shared culture where everyone would go to the theater and where everybody would see whatever the new movies were coming 
word that Hollywood was producing to a time where people are opting out because they can sit in front of their television at home and just watch Leave It to Beaver, Andy Griffith, or The Honeymooners for the umpteenth time. Um, Hollywood is losing traction. And Bradbury is talking about that loss of traction. Um, that's kind of what's hovering over his whole discussion here. This is the era in the wake of the great golden age of Hollywood. And, and this novel is littered with references to Hollywood actors and actresses of that golden age now long since gone. Um, our narrator and Crumley are very much wandering around Hollywood, wandering around Los Angeles, acknowledging all of these graves in a sense. Um, the novel is haunted by their absence. But importantly, I said transition, not at all, you know, actual like end of an era sort of, you know, like Hollywood is gone now. As much as many, you know, scholars and critics and artists and so on and so forth regard the 1950s as like the greatest moment in Hollywood's history, or at least the 40s into the 50s, and that everything after that is, is kind of crap and, and tawdry and either commercial or you know, like inappropriately pretentious or whatever. Um, again, Tarantino sets Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in this period not because he wants to show how, you know, lost Hollywood has become, but to show, again, the transition, the change, um, the fact that it's becoming something new. Um, ad admittedly, Hollywood isn't the only place making movies anymore. You know, that's why... Tarantino emphasizes, like, the, the westerns are moving overseas, the spaghetti westerns are becoming more important than the, the old-school Hollywood westerns at this particular moment in time. Um, it's not dead, it's just developing. It's becoming the new version of itself. But Bradbury doesn't seem to see that part, or at least he's not showing it to us here, in, in this particular book, at this particular moment. Um, at this point, Constance seems to be an, a, an actress who has up until now lived on her former glory, but at this point has made so many enemies and has buried so many friends that she's on the run from death itself. And it seems that she's kind of standing in for the entirety of, of Los Angeles itself. The entire movie industry is trying to stay one step ahead of death itself. Um, that's very much the, the sense we get from all this running around and, and bumping into other characters. Um, but as much as we might expect a novel that is about, like, ooh, everyone is trying to escape death and it's, un it's you know, inevitable that it is going to ca catch up with us, Bradbury is writing in his usual heightened, high-octane, very active, like, ADHD-style tone here. Um, it is very crazy fast-paced, and, the, you know, lots of transitions will occur in the, me in the course of a sentence. Um, action and, and the conversations will change on a, on a dime. Like, it is really difficult to keep track of what's going on in some senses, but the sense that we are getting is that this is still a rapid-fire, moving-at-the-speed-of-light industry, even if the, the theme underlying this style is ponderous and meditative and very much sort of concerned with its own mortality. But on another level, we should definitely emphasize Bradbury's not working in a vacuum here. Like, his take on the history is strange, to say the least, but it's also the fact that he's writing 
effectively a murder mystery. Like, from the very first chapter, Bradbury very much indicates to us that he is working in a tradition. He starts with this classic line, you know, it was a dark and stormy night, that's that being, you know, the first line of several other novels, the one that I connected with is Madeline Lengel's A Wrinkle in Time, um, which Bradbury knows is old and hackneyed and is sort of written into the character, that the character is the one who delivers the line, like the narrator is in fact a writer in Hollywood and has been a writer for some time and recognizes the fact that this is cliche. Like, notice that it, the book starts, it was a dark and stormy night. Is that one way to catch your reader? Well, then it was a stormy night with dark rain pouring in drenches on Venice, California, etc., etc. The, the speaker, the writer, the narrator knows that this is hackneyed in some sense. He knows that this is artifice. Like, we recognize the fact that we are three layers deep into genre and are surrounded by a context that we cannot escape. And rather than trying to undermine that context, to work around that context, or for that matter, embrace that context, Bradbury just charges forward without any sort of acknowledgement. Just, yep, there's a context, moving on. Um, and what's so strange to me is that the context here is so obviously noir. Like, here we are with a femme fatale walking into this writer's home, potentially seducing him on the spot, although we don't even know how close they actually get. Like, the, the narrator tells us that his wife is, is overseas or something, and she calls, and he says that, you know, he's sleeping alone, even though she asks him right out, like, who is sleeping next to you. Um, this is classic noir setup. Like, there's this temptress, and there's, you know, this mystery hanging over her, and she's got these two books, which Bradbury refers to as the books of the dead, and they seem to be a threat of some kind, and, you know, the whole plot is that all of the people who have been marked in these books are dying one by one, so it's only a matter of time until Constance herself is dead. Like, this is classic noir setup. It's almost hackneyed noir setup it's so painfully obvious. And yet, again, just like we saw with Something Wicked This Way Comes, where Bradbury is kind of very much not doing horror, Bradbury is very much not doing noir here. Like, obviously, he's working in a tradition. He cannot avoid that tradition. When he proposes to say, I'm going to write a murder mystery set in 1960s Los Angeles, like, if you're not thinking Raymond Chandler or, you know, the Maltese Falcon, or any number of great Hollywood noir movies, then that's because you're just missing the, the whole boat here. And Bradbury must know these things. He must recognize that he is working in that context, because again, this novel is littered with references to old Hollywood. Like, many of the, the heroines and the, the femme fatales, the actresses who played these roles, are listed on, you know, the, the posters in the, the projectionist's room, or are, are mentioned by Constance directly, or are sort of mentioned in passing by our narrator. Bradbury knows that he's working in this environment, but the traditional elements of noir are totally missing here. Like, it's clear that Bradbury likes noir. 
It's clear that Bradbury likes the pace of noir, the, the hard-bitten language of noir. Um, you know, you read, Phil, you read the Philip Marlowe novels and you very much get this, this sort of patois of, of gangster, hard-boiled talk, um, tough guy language. And Chandler's an expert at it. Like, he definitely did his homework, did his research. Like, this was what he was hearing himself at the time, especially in his earlier novels. Uh, but Bradbury, Bradbury likes the cadence of that language without actually appreciating or utilizing the nastiness of that language. Um, like this is, in some ways, a nasty novel. There's there's a lot of com a lot of very hard bitten, sarcastic, world weary characters sort of bumping into each other and exchanging barbs and you know like accusing one another in, in loaded language. But it's all flourish and no threat. Um, like, in a Philip Marlowe novel, when you read some of that hard-bitten prose, you will get very aware of how dangerous these people are, how, how menacing they are. The way that they use language is an indication that these people do not play around, and the language that they're using is an indication that they are very much meaning business, that they could very well kill you with the drop of a hat. So let's look at, it, at an example of that. So this isn't an especially famous passage or even a terribly like classic representative passage from Raymond Chandler's writing, but it is one of my all-time favorites, and it's one that I can't help but you know revisit from time to time. Um, this is from Farewell, My Lovely, the second of the Philip Marlowe novels. Um, Raymond Chandler is describing, once again, out of the blue, a phone call from a detective who Philip Marlowe has been consulting with on this particular case, and this guy has been shown to us to be kind of underperforming at his work. Marlowe has criticized him for not giving a crap about this particular case, um, because it involves a black person being murdered, which is context that, you know, we will come back to. Um, so the phone rings. Uh, it was Nulty. He sounded mean. Marlowe? Yeah. Did you get him? Oh, sure. We got him. He stopped to snarl. On the Ventura line, like I said. Boy, did we have fun. Six foot six, built like a coffer dam, on his way to Frisco to see the fair. He had five quarts of hooch in the front seat of the rent car, and he was drinking out of another one as he rode along, doing a quiet 70. All we had to go up against him with was two county cops with guns and blackjacks. He paused, and I turned over a few witty sayings in my mind, but none of them seemed amusing at the moment. Nulty went on. So he'd done exercises with the cops, and when they were tired enough to go to sleep, he pulled off one side of their car, threw the radio into the ditch, opened a fresh bottle of hooch, and went to sleep himself. After a while, the boys snapped out of it and bounced blackjacks off his head for about ten minutes before he noticed it. When he began to get sore, they got handcuffs on him. It was easy. We got him in the icebox now. Drunk driving, drunken auto, assaulting police officer in performance of duty, two counts, malicious damage to official property, attempted escape from custody, assault less than mayhem, disturbing the peace, and parking on a state highway. Fun, ain't it? What's the gag, I asked him. You didn't tell me all that just to gloat. It was the wrong guy, Nulty said savagely. This bird is named Stoyanovsky, and he lives in Hemet, and he just got through working as a sandhog in the Sand Jack Tunnel. Got a wife and four kids. Boy, is she sore. What's you doing on Malloy? Now, notice, I want to emphasize a couple of things about the language here in this passage. The way that 
Chandler writes, that these characters speak to one another, the assumptions that they're making, and just the interaction that's taking place. Again, notice, as much as Marlowe is our main character and he's got his own set of, you know, witty sayings and likes to make snide comments from time to time, notice that he's quiet here. Um, this is actually pretty normal for Marlowe. Like, as much as he usually has a quick comeback and a zinger and will frequently harass people who, you know, are in fact getting tough with him and, and who he thinks are just blowing smoke, Nulty is calling him to give him information, and Marlowe respects this. There is a transactional nature to this conversation. Marlowe appreciates the fact that he's been keep, being kept in the loop. But notice how Nulty describes this situation. Notice Nulty's perspective here. Nulty has been told, go track this one guy down, he sends a couple of cops to do it, and what he's emphasizing here is how inequipped they are to handle this situation. That here is this giant of a man, six foot six, who is apparently drunk off his butt, driving 70 miles an hour, and here come these two cops to chase him around. He gets the better of them, knocks them both unconscious, and then falls asleep himself, again, because he's drunk. The cops wake up before he does and, as and I quote, bounce blackjacks off his head for about ten minutes before he wakes up and notices, at which point they cuff him and drag him off to jail. So, but the emphasis here, Nulty's perspective here, is that he's A, seen all of this before. This is all just stage play to him. And the entire story is undercut by the fact that he has to reveal to Marlowe that they had the wrong guy. That the police department is chasing the wrong man, did not find anyone remotely connected to the crime, was working off of a lousy description, and ended up with a lousy collar. And now the missus is mad at them, and everything is just gone to hell. Everything about this, everything about this passage is cynical. Like, first and foremost, it is the most obvious thing that comes through. And while there's fun in this cynicism, you know, Nolte uses this, like, jaded perspective to express things in this really interesting and really sort of vivid way. Um, at the same time, he's displeased, and that displeasure cuts through the text. All of his exaggerations, the all we had to go up against him was two county cops with guns and blackjacks, or they bounced blackjacks off his head for ten minutes, or, you know, he pulled off, pulled one side off their car, threw the radio into the ditch, opened a fresh bottle of hooch, and went to sleep himself. Like, all of what Nolte is emphasizing, all of the exaggerations here are comic exaggerations, but they're comic exaggerations to emphasize how badly this situation went. How inequipped the police were to deal with this situation, how big and strong this random drunk dude actually was, and how casually he commits these crimes. What Nolte is describing here, and what Marlowe is usually describing in all of his novels, is a world so incredibly corrupt from top to bottom that any amount of, you know, goodness or or decent behavior is astonishing. And the assumption 
the assumption that all of these characters make. Nolte, this, you know, world-weary uh, cop. Marlowe, the detective who's seen all of this a thousand times before. The county cops who get their butts handed to them. And the drunk guy who doesn't give a crap about any of this and just ends up in the county jail until he cools off. The emphasis all of the way through this is that this is just normal that drunks beat up cops, that cops fail to bring in the right guy, that the crimes that Nolte is dealing with are happening so frequently that there's no reason to get upset about any of this. This serious injustice that has been committed, which is itself, in fact, covering up for the serious crime that this person committed by driving 70 miles an hour drunk, assaulting two police officers, like, destroying half of their property, and then passing out. Like, all of this suggests that the world is so ridiculously depraved um, that there's no help for it. That every little bit of good that Marlowe does is just a drop in the bucket here. Um, and that all of these men live lives well outside whatever is happening right now. Like, Nolte is a rich, multi-layered character just from this, the way that he tells this story. And Marlowe is a rich, multi-layered character just in the way that he listens to it and narrates this story to us. And even the county cops and this random guy they pulled over, you get the sense that they have lives. We see glimpses of that life outside of them. It is a sad, miserable, tawdry life, but a life nonetheless. And this is what makes noir noir. Like, whether you're reading the crime noir of the 1940s, things like The Postman, Ring, or the Postman Always Rings Twice, or Nightmare Alley, or you're reading, like, detective noir of, you know, like, Dashiell Hammett or, or uh, Raymond Chandler, this is the perspective that they're all emphasizing, this world weariness, this cynicism. But Bradbury doesn't have a cynical bone in his body. Um, and he admires that language, that pacing. He even admires that cynicism, and he even gives some of his characters, you know, a handful of that cynicism. But it's not terribly compelling, because all of the characters are always talking at this heightened language. They don't take their moments the way that Marlowe does. They don't calculate what they're saying. And their expressions don't necessarily speak to their characters. And in fact, this is probably the biggest complaint I have with this novel. As much as we have a lot of characters talking to each other with this very high, like, very sort of almost, like, classic Hollywood red or elevated register, you know, every line is a Humphrey Bogart zinger or a Philip Marlowe, like, wisecrack. Um, as much as all of that is true, as much as every line of dialogue just crackles with this action and intensity, you'll notice that it never conveys the sort of information that Chandler does, like as much as Nolte is, you know, emphasizing and, and like embellishing the way that he describes this routine police pullover, um, it is at the end of the day emphasizing the information. You know, we get a pretty vivid picture of what happens. This guy is driving home at this ridiculous pace, weaving back and forth over the line. The cops chase after him. They finally pull him over. He gets belligerent, knocks them both on their butts, and then passes out himself just in time for them to try and, like, knock some sense into him and finally bring him in for a litany of crimes, only to have his wife show up and protest a little while later. Nothing that elegant, nothing that vivid, nothing that 
logical is communicated when Bradbury's characters talk to one another. And since all of them are using this elevated register, it's pretty much impossible to tell who is speaking at any time except for the dialogue tags. So many of these writers, Chandler included, or, you know, we could definitely talk about Dostoevsky again, or my all-time favorite, uh, William Faulkner, loves to give each character their own perspective and to have each character's perspective and character inform their dialogue. When you're reading a Dostoevsky novel, you can almost always tell who's speaking just by the way they communicate. You know, like we did when we dissected the, the early scene from the Brothers Karamazov, you can see that Dmitri, when he speaks, is, is always just sort of gushing with, with anxiousness and emotion, where Ivan is restrained and intellectual and, and methodical in his speaking, where Father Zosima is always compassionate, um, and where Alyosha is excitable. Um, we get that just from the way they talk. And we get Nolte's cynicism from the way he delivers his story, just as we get Marlowe's cynicism from the narration that he presents to us. But the perspective we get from Bradbury's characters is obscured by the language instead of revealed by the language. Um, where Marlowe's characters all speak their mind in some sense, like we get a glimpse of who these people are from the way that they talk, Bradbury's characters all speak the same way. They are all talking Bradbury-ese. Um, and what's more, they even have moments where they read each other's minds, where they're, they're like not even participating in a conversation at all. No new information is passing from one person to another in most of the dialogue scenes. Instead, most of what's exchanging is just pretty noise, literary pyrotechnics, linguistic fireworks. Like, we're seeing a lot of very vivid language doing very little to describe what's actually happening. Like, every now and again we get a really interesting descriptive passage. Um, and those Bradbury images remain as firm as ever. Like, probably one of the few things that I remembered about my first read of this novel literally over 15 years ago at this point is the stacks of newspapers where, where Clarence Radigan uh, is now living and, like, he's surrounded by all of the headlines of, of yesteryear. And, you know, they wade through these piles of newspapers and over here is, like, you know, VE Day and over here is Hitler found dead in bunker and over here is, you know, some other famous celebrity who's dead due to an overdose or something. Like, all of these newspapers give us this context. It's, it's vivid prose that helps to illuminate the, the environment around us. But the characters are rarely depicted as such. As much as we might expect the guy who lives in the, the you know, room full of newspapers, who lives in constant terror that they're going to, like, fall over and crush him, that, like, the sheer weight of history is, is potentially going to destroy him at any moment, we might expect him to be dry and scholarly, for, for him to sort of, um, to, to, have this ponderous language to always be referring to to events long since past he might be dry musty and boring but that's not the way that clarence is actually described that's not the way that he actually speaks um when we in fact see a conversation between them when in fact they they identify clarence in the room hiding behind 
some of the various stacks, you know, as, as our narrator and, and Crumbly wander through the, the, uh, um, the stacks of newspapers, we get a little bit of this indication, but take a look at the passage on, on page 33. The rag bundles stirred, some ancient blanket shreds flaked from a face like watermarks on mud shallows. A faint crack of light glinted between two withered lids. Pardon my not rising, the withered mouth trembled. Chez Monsieur from Armentieres haven't got up in forty years. It cackled the cackle that almost killed it. It began to cough. No, no, I'm okay, it whispered. The head fell back. Where the hell you been? Where? I've been expecting you, said the mummy. What year is it? 1932? 1946? 1950? You're getting warmer. 1960. How's that? Bullseye, said Crumley. I'm not all crackers. The old man's dry, dust mouth quavered. You bring my vittles? Vittles? No, no, couldn't be. It's a kid. Totes the dog food through that Grub Street newsprint alley, can by can, or the whole damn thing falls. You're not him, or he. We glanced behind and shook our heads. How you like my penthouse? Original meaning? Place where they used to pent up people so they couldn't run amok. We gave it a different meaning and raised the rent. Where was I? Oh yeah. How do you like this joint? Now, on the some level, we do get his ponderousness. He's dislocated from time. We get that line, you know, what year is it? 1932, 46, 50, and then finally our narrator tells him it's, it's 1960. But as much as we do get a couple of digressions here, we get the, you know, original meaning of the word penthouse. Um, as, as much as we glimpse that, we also have seen the narrator do the same thing. Like, he's the one who identifies where the name California comes from. Um, he is often sort of giving Crumbly information about a location that Crumbly didn't ask for. Um, so Crumbly gives, or Crumbly gets a whole speech from the narrator about the opening of the, the Pasadena City Brass Band playing Hail Columbia as, as the railroad is opened. Like, all of these characters are loaded with history. All of these characters have a certain amount of that hard-bitten, you know, hard-boiled patois. The what the this is how do you like this joint? Our Clarence Radigan tells us um, we're not actually informed about his character. What we are given is physical description. Um, a faint crack of light glinted between two withered lids. Um, it cackled a cackle that almost killed it, or describing Clarence as the mummy at one point. An image that we've actually seen applied to multiple characters, because the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Egyptian tomb uh, imagery is employed pretty frequently here. Um, Bradbury has very vivid language, will never settle for a bland word, but each one of those vivid words, each one of those, you know, powerful words is kind of just lost in the noise here. It's all power. It's all at a high register. And as a consequence, without any peaks to fall into, there's no differentiation here. It's really hard to keep track of the characters, to keep track of the action, to get a sense of each location. Some of them work. Some of them are really vivid. Again, the newspaper stacks stick in my mind, but the man who dwells there? Not so much. There's nothing distinct about the way that he interacts with the other characters, just the way that he's described. And to some degree, all of that is just reused imagery. Um, like, as much as we do get that evocative language, you know, some ancient blanket shreds flaked from a face like watermarks on mud shallows, 
Like, let's talk about that sentence. What is it even telling us? You know, here we are, Crumley and our narrator, approaching Clarence, who is apparently huddled in, in a, like, blanket at one end of this building. Um, and we're told, you know, there was a strong smell. Not dead, I thought, not alive. Um, we're anticipating meeting this character. We, we can see it coming. We approach the cot slowly with Crumley behind. I knew the odor now, not death, but the great unwashed. I.e., here is a person who has not washed in a long time, who is, you know, filthy and disgusting, who hasn't been taking care of themselves. We're told the rag bundle stirred. Okay, so now we're going to get our glimpse. And the line we get is that one. Some ancient blanket shreds flaked from a face like watermarks on mud shallow. So, first off, some ancient blanket shreds, alright, that tracks, that definitely keeps up with the, the language of, you know, this being an ancient place, this being like a tomb, um, it, it mirrors the, the ancient newspapers and the, the mummy character who we are introduced to, like, that definitely resonates with all of the language surrounding it. Ancient blanket shreds flaked from a face. So we go from, okay, this guy is like wrapped in a blanket to he's actually carrying or covered by like a tattered blanket, shreds flaking from a face. So it was barely covered. Like we originally didn't think that there was a person here at all because of the, the bundle of rags. Instead, we find that there weren't that many rags at all. It's just flaking from his face. And then the comparison, like watermarks on mud shallows. Which I don't even know how to parse this. Like, the comparison, the, the like here, the word like, would theoretically, you know, balance the two halves of the sentence. So the flaking of the blankets should be like the watermarks on mud shallows. But that doesn't make sense, because watermarks, A, we'll get to that. Um, but, like, how? Why? Is it the blanket that's like the, the watermark? Or, or so his face would be like the mud shallows, pocked and, and, and therefore like wrinkled? That would at least make a little bit of sense. Um, but if the watermarks, I guess it's the face is like watermarks on mud shallows, not the flaking is like watermarks on mud shallows. It's, it's impossible to parse. It, it doesn't make sense. The image evokes that deep, channeled face. Like, that's why we're using the, the language here. That's why we're using the simile. But all of this is just lost in the wildness of this language. Um, the ancient blanket treads flaked from a face like watermarks on mud shallows. So, yes, like... You're going to have to read it three or four times to make sense of it. And even then, it's all mixed metaphor. It's all just layer upon layer upon layer of just language somersaults. Like, and this is what makes Bradbury who he is. His style is the most distinct part about him, especially at this point in time. As much as, you know, I've kind of delivered these series of lectures anticipating that we would get at Bradbury's themes and his substances, the things that he revisits over and over again, and I do want to with this one as well, what's most notable about the late Bradbury, the Bradbury of, you know, the last couple of stories in The, the Illustrated Man and definitely Something Wicked This Way Comes and especially here in Let's All Kill Constance, 
is he has this ebullience to his writing, his excitement that just comes through on every sentence. But in the process of making every word, every line, every sentence shine and crackle, on top of the, the sort of gymnastics that your mouth has to perform in order to just pronounce the stuff that Bradbury is saying here, there's very little in the way of substance. There's very little resonance with the other stuff going on. Like, we'll see a couple of moments where that happens. You know, a faint crack of light glinted between two withered lids. All of it is emphasizing this guy is old. This guy is desiccated. This guy is unwashed. But each line just hammers that point home. Rather than sort of developing and opening up new possibilities for interpretation and new dimensions of this person's character. When our Marlowe uh, detective, when, when Nut Nutley, like, tells us all about his, his criminal, you know, apprehension, we see a lot of who he is. We, we see a lot of what his perspective is like. When we see Clarence described here, all we get is one note. And that note is larger than life. It's extraordinarily vivid. It's brilliantly described. But it is one note. And that's all this character is. Like, we're going to interact with him for this one scene. He's going to bounce his ideas and his funny language off of our narrator's funny language and Crumley's funny, la funny language, and then die. Um... But we're not going to get any sense of his richness, the life that he lives outside himself. He is a set piece here. And Bradbury knows he's a set piece, and he's fine with him being a set piece, and you probably should be also. Like, trying to read these two side by side is difficult, because Bradbury definitely suffers in the comparison. Like, Chandler is a master of weaving all of this language into description that serves to, like draw new attention, new attention to new themes and new ideas to really characterize the people involved. Chandler is writing incredibly efficiently, but Bradbury doesn't. Bradbury isn't interested in efficiency. Hell, he's not even that interested in the storytelling. Like, for all of this conversation with Clarence, as much as we have this brilliantly devised setting and this brilliantly, like, described character, as much as we are emphasizing over and over again, this guy is old, this guy has seen things, this guy, you know, is suffering in his own sort of squalorous, like, history, we don't do anything with it, except, okay, there's the symbol, there's the metaphor stacked on other metaphors, and that's all he is in this story. Collect the metaphors together, and you get a better sense of what Bradbury is doing, a better sense of the imagery here, but on a line-by-line -line basis, all we're doing is tone. Building and maintaining this wild tone. And Bradbury sustains it for the whole novel, which is honestly an impressive feat in its own right. But again, there's no downtime. There's no exposition that isn't just drowned in all of this fancy language. And it means that as much as I love Bradbury's earlier work, because it is evocative in that way, while also appreciating the sort of pacing issues that really allow a story to shine, 
here, with no pacing, with no sort of underlying story logic, just the language, just the pace, like this rapid-fire, you know, repartee between characters, just this quick, quick, on to the next point, rapid rapidness, it's really hard to appreciate, I suppose? It's really hard to let anything stick. Bradbury is doing the equivalent of a Michael Bay movie here. Everything is important. Everything is moving quickly. Rush, 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 rush. And when you're done, you're left feeling kind of overwhelmed. Just nothing sticks because everything is important. There's no down... There's no downbeat to compare the upbeats to. There's no boring characters to compare the vivid characters with. There's no way to sort of differentiate between one character and another because they're all speaking as though they are some, you know, borderline crazy Bradbury protagonist, excited beyond all possibility. You know, we've heard speeches like this before. This is Captain Beatty delivering his his monologue to Montag in true villainous form. Or this is, you know, our one philosophical character before he vents himself out of a spaceship and floats through space for some endless amount of time. Um, this is our archaeologist coming to Mars and delivering his speeches about Martian culture and architecture as he's murdering people on his ship. That's what makes Bradbury so memorable, and those characters really do shine through because the other characters around them allow them to shine through, serve as a baseline reality for us to sort of understand and appreciate for them to rise above. At moments of high tension, this is exactly the sort of language I want to see. But this isn't a moment of high tension. This is a moment of exposition. Like, let's talk genre for a moment. You know, comparing Bradbury to Chandler isn't just because of his language, it's because Bradbury is writing a murder mystery here. But there are conventions to writing a murder mystery. There are genre expectations for writing a murder mystery. And Bradbury is, once again, kind of just ignoring a lot of them. Like, structurally, this looks like every other murder mystery. Here is Bradbury's narrator sitting at home on a dark and stormy Venice, California night when femme fatale Constance Radigan comes through the door and kicks the plot off. Classic noir storytelling, you could definitely find the exact same thing in the Maltese Falcon or Chinatown or you name it. Classic. Even Hackney, like I said. And then we follow her. We've got this book, and this book has apparently a whole bunch of names, many of which have been marked with these mysterious and ominous red crosses. So they go tracking these people down. They go to Clarence Radigan, and they find the house full of newspapers. They go find Khalifa, the, the fortune teller, who apparently told Constance and Clarence to get together, and her sort of, like, prognostications about our main character and how he's going to live forever because of his writing. I don't even want to touch that one. Um, we meet Father Radigan at his church and discover that he is Constance's twin, and then we go to Grumman's theater and find out that Clyde Rustler, um, the projectionist, is actually Constance's father. Like, we're introduced to all of these characters, and this is, again, classic noir structure. Usually when Chandler is writing his noir novels, or when, you know, like, Dashiell Hammett shows us characters in the Maltese Falcon, it is pretty typical of characters 
or of the detective to sort of wander around and meet a lot of people in the first half of the novel. Um, we're not doing the full English treatment here, like Chandler himself has some reservations about that in The Simple Art of Murder, where like if you're in a Sherlock Holmes novel or an Agatha Christie novel, you're gonna like have ten people just immediately introduced to you out of the gate and they're all like stuck in a house or a train or a boat or something where they can't, you know, get out and you you always know who all of the potential characters are. The obvious function of this is so you can introduce yourself and get familiar with all of the characters, get familiar with all of the suspects. At this point, you should still be looking for clues. Because this is a detective novel, and you know it's a detective novel, and whether you're doing the British style where everybody sits in a room together and we are sort of like presented to the, the characters as though we are, you know, at a murder mystery party already being shown who all of the potential suspects are, or if you're doing the American style where it's much more natural but much more time-consuming, and Chandler has Marlowe going from house to house, location to location, introducing you to character after character, either way, the purpose here is so you can know who the suspects are, who the victims are, so you can get some attachment and get some knowledge about who these people are. And Bradbury, to some degree, is following that structure as well. Here we are with all of our characters, Clarence Radigan, Khalifa, Father Radigan, and Clyde Rustler, only by the time that you've already met Clyde Rustler, two of them are dead. Like, we're already killing them off before we're getting an opportunity to appreciate them as suspects. And the tendency here, what the novel is telling us, is that this should be a pattern that we're going to expect all of these characters to be dead by the end. Everyone who was marked in that way is threatened, and some mysterious unknown third party is apparently going through and knocking them all out. Which kind of leaves us in a really weird position as far as the reader is concerned. Like, there isn't necessarily a mystery to solve, except, you know, who gave Constance the books who is presumably the person who is also bumping off all of these characters, but all, the characters are dying as quickly as we're meeting them, so there's no opportunity for us to solve this mystery. Like, there are definitely no hints anywhere saying that, like, Clarence actually could totally fake his own death, or, you know, Constance has, has in fact, written the, the same, you know, Red Crosses in, in other locations, and we can tie, like, her handwriting to something else. Like, we're not given that opportunity because this isn't a murder mystery in the sense of a puzzle. It's not here to be solved. It's like a ride. We are on the rail. We are riding this, this rail to the very bottom of the, the slope and then back up and down and up and down again. This is the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom approach to, you know, genre literature. Yes, what you are here for is not solving the mystery, despite the fact that this is supposedly a murder mystery novel, despite the fact that it has all of these other genre conventions, the fact that it is beat-for-beat beat comparable to something like Raymond Chandler or something like Dashiell Hammett. For all of that, you're supposed to somehow approach this book from a completely different perspective. And I defended that for Something Wicked This Way Comes. Like, Something Wicked This Way Comes is very clearly doing its own thing and doesn't plug into the genre conventions of horror in order to do it. The iconography is horrifying, but the actual delivery, the beats, the, the genre that Bradbury is working in is very much his own. Very much his own invention. 
It has more to do with his other stories than any other tradition outside of himself. But here, Bradbury is very clearly aping the tradition of noir detective stories without knowing how any of this functions. Or at the very least, without paying attention to how any of this functions. Like, let's give Bradbury the benefit of the doubt and assume he's got his own purpose here, that he's not just casually trying to, you know, write a murder mystery and failing miserably at it. Let's assume he's got his own purpose. But it's really hard to tell what that purpose actually is. Like, what is he doing here? The way that it was very clear what he was doing in Fahrenheit 451, or the way that it was very clear what he was doing in The Velt, or even the way it was very clear that he had something to show us in Something Wicked This Way Comes. What are we being shown here? And on some level, it is just kind of a museum. Like, we're seeing these characters who are all sort of vibrant, if one note, who are all representatives of some sort of old Hollywood tawdry culture that doesn't actually have a whole lot to do with old Hollywood tawdry culture. Like, Bradbury is very much looking away from a lot of the reality of this situation. He, he's not... As much as he's setting his novel in 1960, I kind of have to wonder why. Like, what is the reasoning for this? Why write this book? What is Bradbury's agenda here? What is he trying to show us? Why did this book need to exist in some sense? And coming up empty, for the most part. And on the one hand, that's hard to, for me to admit. Like, I want to like this book. He's one of my favorite writers. I, I like what he does in a lot of his other works. And again, there's a lot that I like about this novel, but it bugs me. It bugs me so much. And part of that is because, you know, I read it once upon a time, but back then I was young and naive and had never encountered noir fiction and, you know, kind of knew the conventions the way that everybody knows the conventions, the way that they're sort of parodied in other works of literature and art and film. You know, that was as much as I knew about it. But now that I'm actually knowledgeable about this stuff, now that I've encountered these other writers and seen how they work, now that I've, you know, tried myself to write one of these and recognize how friggin' difficult it is to pull this off... I'm looking at Bradbury and saying, what are you doing here? What is your objective? What are you trying to accomplish? Because the other side to this is that when you are, in fact, boiling these characters down to one-note characters, and when you are, in fact, sort of reducing these big, impressive images, these big, evocative scenes and iconography to just these big, evocative icons, you also run a lot of danger of doing injustice to the topics and subjects that, are, that you're surrounding yourself with. And Bradbury runs into some major trouble in this novel as a consequence. Like, we do get more female characters than we're used to seeing in Bradbury's writing. 
like we it's been pretty rare for us to encounter important female characters like we talked a little bit in Fahrenheit 451 about it's kind of problematic that like the one or the two major female characters in the entire novel are Manic Pixie Dream Girl who like inspires Montag to go on his quest of self-discovery and his wife who is basically the functional stand-in for the destructive dystopian uh, society altogether like, we can't expand that list with some of the characters we've encountered in The Illustrated Man and the Martian Chronicles. Like, we can add quite a few beleaguered wives and loving mothers who are suffering from their, like, menfolk's uh, negligence. But we haven't really seen a fully developed female character. And then Bradbury goes charging into a tradition and a genre that has been historically problematic about its women. And I should clarify here. On the one hand, some of noir's female characters are some of the best characters in the whole of Hollywood, in the whole of literature, certainly in American literature in the 20th century. Like, oh my gosh, some of the female female leads in, in some of uh, the, the sort of lesser-known noir movies are amazing. They're the ones who very much take control of the plot and solve it themselves. But Bradbury, in choosing the big, broad-strokes iconography, chooses the most denigrating versions of women that he can get his hands on. Constance as femme fatale means Constance as temptress, a sort of trope and idea that goes all the way back to the misogyny of ancient Greece. You know, this woman who strides into a detective's office and then proceeds to ruin his life is kind of a pretty lousy trope as they go. Um, and the other female characters we're encountering here aren't a whole lot better. Like, the narrator's wife seems painfully oblivious to what's going on, or at least, or if not oblivious, then extremely permissive. She's very much a non-entity, and the main character doesn't seem to have any respect for her at all. Um, we get Khalifa, who is just a stock fortune teller stereotype with very little added on to that character. And the other female characters we're running into are basically secretaries just giving us information about the male characters like poor Father Radigan's secretary, who is kind of the last person we hear from here. And Bradbury wasn't doing great on women to begin with. And then add, add an insult to injury, when we go to Grumman's Chinese theater, Bradbury starts laying into a lot of those stereotypes. Suddenly we're dealing with racist stereotypes as well as sexist stereotypes. And on some level, it is appropriate. It's 1960 Los Angeles. You'll see this all over period literature from the time. But again, he's writing this in 2003. What is he adding? What is he changing? What is he telling us about? What, why does this exist? Why should we read this? What message does he have to communicate to us? One of the things that's really been bothering me, especially from our discussion of Something Wicked This Way Comes and now Let's All Kill Constance, one of the the various interviews that Bradbury gave back in the, it had to be the two, early 2000s, I think it was on occasion of one of the big anniversaries of Fahrenheit 451. Um, Bradbury is in this interview, and one of the, 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 I think the interviewer asks him something along the lines of, like, okay, so what 
is the point of Fahrenheit 451? Do you see the world that you predicting Fahrenheit 451 coming to pass? And Bradbury makes a pretty interesting comparison, a pretty compelling comparison when you think about it. Um, he says that in the 1990s and in the early 2000s, the, the sort of representative work of art that he sees as, as being indicative of the culture of the dystopian world in Fahrenheit 451, the sort of empty, flashy, consumerist, uh, insubstantial, like, just pop art in some sense. Um, he says that this actually is what he associates with Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. Um, and if you haven't seen the movie, go. Go see it. It's fascinating. It's just a wonderful glimpse into the early 2000s. Like, it is a heck of a time just to enjoy and take it all in. Um, and it is, it is this. It is color, and it is loud, and it is music, and it is catchy, and it is pop songs, like, reworked, because that's Baz Luhrmann's whole deal. Like, that's how he got famous with Romeo plus Juliet, and, you know, he did it again for The Great Gatsby. Like, that's his thing. Um, but Bradbury's very critical of Luhrmann, and I find that really hard to swallow, seeing as I would definitely categorize Let's All Kill Constance, and to some degree Something Wicked This Way Comes, as having the same character, as being the same sort of thing. If anything, Lerman has something substantial to say. Lerman is saying that, you know, the excesses of our culture parallel the excesses of cultures that have come before. And Moulin Rouge especially does have a serious emotional plot through line. It is a love story, a tragic love story, admittedly, an arch love story, a, you know, utterly, like, super real to the point of surreal love story, but a totally heartbreaking one. Like, it is gut-wrenching. And Lerman pulls that off, despite all of the high elevated language, despite the fact that all the characters break into song at the, you know, drop of a hat, despite the fact that it is all musical numbers and all shouting and screaming and, you know, all arch emotions and all camp in some sense. But Bradbury has the camp without actually using it, without actually doing much with it. He doesn't seem to recognize that he is camp. Because if he did, wouldn't he embrace Lerman? Wouldn't he see that he was maybe wrong about Fahrenheit 451? Has he in fact changed his mind? Is he in fact conscious of becoming the thing that he had originally warned us away from? Like, I imagine poor Faber sitting in his, you know, dim little house with his television that he can hide with the palm of his hand because he doesn't want it to outshout him. You know, saying that line about, like, good art touches life often. And I have to wonder, how does Bradbury see himself in relation to that description? Has Bradbury managed to remain a creator, a worker of life? Is life's infinite profusion here on the page in Let's All Kill Constance? The way that it kind of was in Fahrenheit 451 and, and all of his other science fiction stories. Because say what you want, like, Bradbury's style hasn't evolved that much. It's become more of itself. Bradbury has given up 
on traditional conventions. He has given up on the expectations that we have for his work. And now it is all arch speeches. Now it is all fancy language. Now it is all, you know, fireworks and, and noise and, and beautiful imagery and evocative wording without all of the downtime, without all of the pacing, without all of the structure that we would usually expect. On some level, Fahrenheit 451 and Let's All Kill Constance are very clearly written by the same writer, by the same author, and his interests and priorities haven't changed that much. But can he really excuse himself? Can he really say that there's something in Let's All Kill Constance that reflects that reality of life, that infinite profusion that he very much emphasized once upon a time? And if so, how does he reject something like Moulin Rouge for not doing that? Where is the line here? What is that depiction supposed to show us? What, what is the meaning? Because it is vague. It's hopelessly vague in favor, and that's probably necessary in order to describe what makes art great. You know, what distinguishes something like Fahrenheit 451 from the likes of Moulin Rouge or, for that matter, Let's All Kill Constance. We have to recognize there is something there. It's not just the language. It's not just storytelling convention. That must be true. So let's look at the passage in Let's All Kill Constance that I suspect, if we're going to find thematic depth here, this is where it is likely to be. Um, and I could pick a couple of passages. There are some good ones. Like, honestly, any one of the major chapters where our narrator and Crumbly encounter one of the various suspects and have a deep sort of quasi-philosophical conversation about the history of Hollywood could probably suffice here. But I want to look at Constance herself. And for that, we need to look at chapter 20. And I'm probably going to read this whole damn chapter. Like, it's it's... It's five pages long, which honestly makes it a long one in this book. Um, and it is probably as close to being dense as any of this book really is. Um, so let's take a look at it. It was said that Constance Radigan had the smallest to tootsies in all Hollywood, perhaps in the whole world. She had her shoes cobbled in Rome and airmailed to her twice a year because her old ones were melted from champagne poured by crazed suitors. Small feet, dainty toes, tiny shoes. We are getting some good description here. But unfortunately, it is the same description that is kind of unnecessary. It is just driving home Constance Radigan as the shiftless actress, you know, loving and leaving many a man, totally, you know, irrespective of their value, totally irresponsible in, in her, you know, relationships with other people. Um, and yet, being rich and famous enough to have her shoes airmailed to her from Rome because they were melted by champagne. Her imprints left in ground and cement the night of August 22nd, 1929, proved this. Girls testing their size found their feet to be titanic and pitiful, and abandoned her prince in despair. So we are also shown her relationship to the culture around her, i.e., she is a Hollywood star. People look up to her. They recognize her as being something that they want to become. And 
as is customary in Los Angeles. She puts her imprint, the imprint of her hands and feet, on the sidewalk, the Walk of Fame, in front of Grauman's Theater, and tourists come to compare the size of their feet to their, to hers, and find them ungainly, titanic, wanting. Bradbury, through this image, power, like, small as it is, once again taps into something very powerful here. He recognizes, you know, here are these girls trying to live up to an expectation that they can't. They are trying to fit a beauty standard that Constance fits only because of her, you know, team of people taking care of her, and who are themselves dismayed and frustrated by their efforts to keep up with that unattainable standard. So here I was alone on a strange night in Grauman's forecourt, the only place in dead, unburied Hollywood where shoppers brought dreams for refunds. The crowd cleared. I saw her footprints some twenty feet away. I froze. Because a small man in a black trench coat, a snap-brim hat yanked over his brow, had just tucked his shoes in Radigan's footprints. Jesus God, I gasped. They fit! So, notice, again, we get... A potent image here. I was alone on a strange night in Grauman's forecourt, the only place in dead, unburied Hollywood where shoppers brought dreams for refunds. So dead, unburied Hollywood, once again, we are very much sort of reckoning with Hollywood's own mortality. The fact that this is, you know, a dead place, that all of the greats are gone, that, you know, it is sort of just being preserved for no reason, mummified, a, a sort of fiction of life in some sense, as much as that is, you know, unrealistic to what's actually happening at the time, we'll leave that one alone. Um, but all of this setup, as much as we are tapping into all of these things, we don't develop it. Like, we, we get the idea, we get the fancy language, the, the sort of witty observation by the on the part of the narrator, both, you know, the image of all of these girls trying to trying and failing to compare themselves to Constance, and then also, you know, this is dead, unburied Hollywood, but also the one place in it where the tourists are going away disappointed, where they bring their dreams for refunds. Um, but all of this is just immediately abandoned. Like, we don't actually get some thematic development here beyond those couple of lines. So, again, whether you read this as efficiency or callousness, will kind of depend on your take on Bradbury and, and, uh, altogether, I suspect. But all of this is functionally to serve, oh my gosh, here is this person whose feet are the exact same size as Constance's. Like, this is the point that Bradbury is making, that here it is shocking that this one person can in fact fit into this sidewalk, which is why our, you know, narrator tells us immediately Constance, I whispered. The small man's shoulders shrank. Right behind you, I whispered. Are you one of them? I heard a voice say from under the large dark hat. One of what? I said. Are you death chasing me? So all of that setup is just to serve for the payoff of this must be Constance because her shoes fit into this space in the sidewalk. Now, we should have questions about this. We should be asking more about this scene. Why is Constance here? Why is she putting her own feet into the hollows in the Walk of Fame? 
Is she reminiscing? Is she nostalgic? Is she sad? Is this an accident? Like, we don't get any indication of this. It's just set up for the recognition. The narrator says, Constance, and she responds, Are you one of them? Are you death chasing me? So once again, we have another huge, hard-hitting image distracting us from the three foregoing hard-hitting images. We're not lighting on any of them long enough to, for them to sink in. So we don't know why death is chasing her, but that's the image that she's consistently been using. Whether we're supposed to tie this to Hollywood or supposed to tie this to the rest of the characters, it's unclear. Because again, it's tied to like three other images in the course of less than a page. Just a friend trying to keep up, our narrator answers. Not death, just a friend. I've been waiting for you, the voice said, not moving, the feet planted firmly in the footprints of Constance Radigan. What's it mean, I say? Why this wild goose chase? Are you scared or playing tricks? Once again, we're just unmoored here. I've been waiting for you, Constance says. So she's not here because she's just putting her foot feet into the footprint. She's not reminiscing or being nostalgic. She's just waiting. Or at least that's what she tells us. And we're not given any more insight to indicate anything deeper, so... Moving on once again, but in response to, I've been waiting for you, our narrator asks, what does it mean? Why this wild goose chase? Are you scared or playing tricks? And I have to ask, why this question? Like, she's waiting for him, despite the fact that she hasn't contacted him, she hasn't tried to get in touch with him, she hasn't left him a note or anything. The only reason that, you know, she, she could have any connection to him following her. The only reason she could anticipate that he would follow her is presumably because Father Radigan told her, told him to come to Grauman's like twice. In fact, emphasized it because he got sidetracked when, you know, it turns out the people died. And I believe plot-wise ended up spending quite a few hours off the trail, which means that Constance has probably been waiting here, if she's been waiting here, for hours... And then his question is, are you scared or playing tricks? And once again, we get a dodge. Why would you say that? The voice said hidden. This conversation isn't a conversation. Like, it's not even two people talking past each other. It's just language. It's just words being exchanged. It sounds nice. It sounds crackling. It sounds like these people are, are talking to each other, but... In a weird sort of contrast with what we've seen in Chandler, there's no information exchanging hands. There's just assumptions. There's just line reading. It's all Hollywood nonsense. It's all just style and no substance. There's no meaning to their conversation. They haven't said anything in a page and a half. Good grief, I said. Is this all some cheap dodge? Someone said you might want to write your life and needed someone to help. If you expect that to be me, no thanks. I've got better things to do. So here we actually have a substance, like a thing that our character assumes. The narrator says, are you trying to get me to write your memoirs for you, like, by fiat, by having me follow you around and meet all the people who are important in your life? And Constance says, what's better than me, said the voice, growing smaller. Not admitting, not denying, just what do you have that's better to write about? No one, but is death really after you, or are you looking for a new life? God knows what kind. So if that was, in fact, what she was doing, if this was, in fact, 
what she's trying to get him to do, to just follow her around and document all of her movements and, you know, see all of the major events in her life, the guy she married, the guy, or the girl who convinced her to marry him, the, the twin brother, the father, all of this, it's immediately dropped. Like, he drops it, she drops it, moving on, already on to the next possibility, already following the language, following the Hollywood style to the next thing, namely... Is death really after you? Oh, right, we're, we're, we have a plot that we're trying to follow here. Uh, are you looking for a new life? What better than Uncle Sid's concrete mortuary? All the names with nothing beneath. Ask away. And she responds with equally empty answers. Um, what life could I possibly want other than the one that, that is here? The concrete mortuary, the walk of fame. Are you going to turn and face me? I couldn't talk then. Is this some way of getting me to help you uncover your past? Is the casket half full or half empty? Did someone else make those red marks in the, your Book of the Dead, or did you make them? Now, these are all good questions, but because they're being fired machine gun style, most of them aren't going to get answers. So is, there, is this some way of getting me to help you uncover your past? That's what we literally asked before. Is this all just some elaborate memoirist stunt? Is the casket half full or half empty? I'm not entirely sure how to read this one. Like, I, I, it's pretty obviously an optimism versus pessimism reference, but it's hard to say how it's supposed to work here. Did someone else make those red marks in your Book of the Dead, or did you make them? That's certainly plot relevant. He's effectively asking, are you the one who, you know, is leading me on this wild goose chase? Are you the one who is behind this? Are you the mastermind? And she responds, it had to be someone else, or else why would I be so frightened? Those red ink marks? I've got to look them up, find which ones are dead already and which are just about to die but still alive. Do you ever have the feeling everything's falling apart? So according to Constance, she is doing the same thing that our narrator is doing. She is running around trying to identify who the red marks are and trying to figure out which ones are dead, which ones are about to die, seeing if they are safe, seeing if they are well, not actually being responsible for these murders, because, again, they keep getting murdered, but nonetheless checking on them, I guess? She's apparently just panicked and acting on impulse here? Which is fine, I guess, but it's not doing much for us understanding her or the other characters or the dynamics between them. All it is is just, okay, she's running because she's scared, and we're running because we're scared for her, so what are we in fact doing? What is this all about? Can't somebody please give me a straight answer? Um, Do you ever have the feeling everything's falling apart, she says. Not you, Constance. Christ, yes! Some nights I sleep, Clara Bow, wake up Noah, wet with vodka. Is my face ruined? I'm not even going to touch that one. Like, the imagery there is just too powerful, and I do not know who Clara Bow is, but presumably, like, we wake up drowned in vodka. Anyway, a lovely ruin. So, our, you know, she asks, am I ugly? He responds, it's, you know, you're old but pretty. But still, Radigan stared out at Hollywood Boulevard. Once there were real tourists. Now it's torn shirts. Everything's lost, Junior. Venice Pier drowned, trolley tracks sunk, Hollywood and Vine, was it ever there? And now we transition directly to more old Hollywood reminiscing. Like, we've had this conversation that kind of isn't a conversation. We've 
got a sort of trajectory to Constance's thought, namely she is apparently being nostalgic, she is apparently reflecting, but she's also scared, and it's hard to say what she's, like, she's emphasizing one and then the other and then the other again. Like, we start and she's sitting in the footprints, maybe she's nostalgic, maybe she's reminiscing, great. And then when asked, you know, am I just, like, on a nostalgia trip, or are we both just revisiting your old memory? She says, no, I'm, I'm legitimately scared. But I'm also nostalgic. I'm also reminiscing. Once there were real tourists. Now it's torn shirts. Everything's lost, Junior. Venice Pier drowned, trolley tracks sunk, Hollywood and Vine. Was it ever there? Once, when the Brown Derby hung their walls with cartoons of Gable and Dietrich and the headwaiters were Russian princes, Robert Taylor and Barbara Stanwyck drove by in their roadster. Hollywood and Vine, you planted your feet there. New pure joy. Notice... Again, that's two different speakers, the two different paragraphs. That's Constance first, and then the narrator. But it could be both of them. Because both of them are apparently in love with that same old Hollywood style. But notice the details. Once there were real tourists, once people really cared about this place and the people who lived there, now it's torn shirts. Now they just come indifferently. They don't dress up to see their, you know, idols on the Walk of Fame. No, they just come in whatever they're wearing. It's tawdry to them now as much as it is tawdry to us now. Everything is lost. The value of this place is gone. We don't care anymore. There's no real substance to it. But... The narrator's response, when the Brown Derby hung their walls with cartoons of Gable and Dietrich, Hollywood and Vine, you planted your feet there in new pure joy. What is he even saying? What is the answer here? Like, yes, it was there. Yes, there were great artists and, and actors, Gable, Dietrich, Taylor, Stanwyck. You know, you planted your feet there. You, too, were a Hollywood starlet. You, too, knew the joy of that time and that place. But importantly, for Bradbury, for the narrator, for Constance, it's all gone. And all they remember is, again, the style of it. The, the superficialities, the characters. Like, they're not remembering anything substantial. It's just one glitz exchanged for another. Now the glitz is gone, and they're sad, effectively. You talk nice, Constance says. Want to know where Mama's been? I, like, again, we're sort of turning on a dime here, so I, I guess we're now, you know, asking, like, we're, we're tempting him with more information, offering to give him more insight into what's going on. She moved her arm. She took her some newspaper clippings from beneath her coat. I saw the names Khalifa and Mount Lowe. I was there, Constance, I said. The old man was crushed by a collapsed haystack of news. God, it looked like he died on the San Andreas Fault. Someone pushed the stacks, I think. An indecent burial. And Queen Khalifa, a fall downstairs. And your brother, the priest? Did you visit all three, Constance? I don't have to answer. Let me try a different question. Do you like yourself? Once again, we've switched topics like three times. We go from, I am reminiscing about Hollywood. I remember the old days when there were real tourists here. But then we immediately turn it around to, you know, you flattered me, therefore I'm going to offer you information. But the information she offers is information we already have, because we literally just heard that Constance was there from all three of these people. Um, 
And instead we get a description. Okay, this is how they died. It was awful. Here is some evocative, fancy language description of how exactly these people died. And then we immediately turn it around. Do you like yourself? And on some level, this is an incredibly pertinent question. This is probably where the theme should be hanging out. Like, right here, when we ask this question, do you like yourself, and we, you know, can finally get at what is Constance's game here? Is she, you know, running from herself? Is she hiding from, you know, the reality around her? Is she trying to get back to old Hollywood? If so, how does that connect to all of these people in her life who are suddenly getting murdered? She responds, what? And he gives us his description. Look, I like myself. I'm not perfect, hell no, but I never bedded anyone if I felt they were breakable. Lots of men say, hit the hay, live. Not me, even when it's offered on a plate. So with no sins, I don't often have bad dreams. Oh, sure, there was the time I ran away from my grandma when I was a kid, ran away and left her blocks behind so she came home weeping. I still can't forgive myself. Or hitting my dog, just once I hit him. And that still hurts, 30 years later. Not much of a list, right, to make bad dreams? Constance stood very still. God, God, she said, how I wish I had your dreams. Ask and I'll give you the loan. You poor, dumb, innocent, stupid kid, that's why I love you. Somewhere at Heaven's Gate can I trade in my old chimney soot nightmares for fresh, clean angel wings? Now, here we're in familiar territory. This reminds me a great deal of both the sort of reminiscing about those who have lived and those who have not lived way back in Kaleidoscope and the Illustrated Man, or alternatively, this is very much Charles Halloway talking about being good and bad to his son Will and something wicked this way comes. This is very familiar territory. Bradbury is once again ruminating about, okay, is a life without sin worth living? Like, can you really say that you've lived if you've never bedded the Hollywood starlet or gotten in trouble with your wife or, you know, caused serious harm to somebody else? On some level, this is the obvious distinction between these two characters, something that's very much highlighted here. As much as Constance busts into this guy's house and then, you know, sleeps in the same bed with him, it is apparently incredibly chaste. She is the vixen. She is the temptress. She is our femme fatale. She's the one whose broken hearts left people at the altar, destroyed lives, gotten drunk nine times out of ten, and just, you know, lived up as lived it up as much as she possibly could. And yet she's the one who's doubting, asking questions, reminiscing about that lost time because she doesn't have it anymore. Whereas here the narrator asks. Do you like yourself? Are you living comfortably in your own skin? And offers himself as a comparison. But he hasn't done anything. If anything, he's jealous of her here. Not much of a list, right, to make bad dreams, he asks. And it's hard to say whether he's jealous or bragging, honestly. You know, the one time that he hurt someone was when his grandmother was calling for him and, you know, she and he ran away from her. Like, that's 
a really evocative image, surprisingly. This is, you know, finally some emotional reality to sort of base these characters off of. And finally we have some sort of insight on our narrator, namely he is self-conscious about his own inexperience, self-conscious about his own sort of boring goodness, the way that Charles Halloway was. But Constance's answer is, I wish I had your dreams, so maybe she's jealous of him now? And he gives us pure, tough guy, you know, wisecrack response, ask and I'll give you the loan. How could that even be a thing? Like, he's not actually offering to divorce his wife and marry her or anything. He's asking, he's offering to, like, exchange dreams, which, how would that even work? And he asks, she asks, that's why I love you. Somewhere at Heaven's Gate can I trade in my old chimney soot nightmares for fresh, clean angel wings. And his response is, ask your brother. So now we're talking about God. Now we're talking about the church. Now we're talking about Father Radigan, and her response is, he threw me downstairs to hell long ago. You haven't answered my question, he says. Finally, we circle back around. Do you like yourself? What I see in the mirror, sure. It's what's inside the glass, deep under, scares me. I wake late nights with all that stuff swimming behind my face. Christ, that's sad. Can you help me? How? I don't know which is which, you or your mirror. What's up front, what's beneath? Constance shifted her feet. Can't you stand still, I said? If I say red light, stop. Your feet are stuck in that cement. What then? I saw her shoes ache to pull free. People are staring at us. The theater's closed. Most of the lights are out. The forecourt is empty. You don't understand. I've got to go. Straight on. And here, we can't even tell who's speaking. Like, can't you stand still as... Certainly the narrator. He, it's tagged, I said, but also it makes sense. Like, she's stuck in the concrete. She's the one with her feet in the position that they were once upon a time when they made the imprint in the first place. But people are staring at us. Could be either one of them. The theater's closed. Most of the lights are out. The forecourt is empty. Could be either one of them. You don't understand I've got to go straight on. Sounds like Constance. So that means people are staring at us as Constance? But why are they staring at them? Why is she self-conscious about them staring at them? That's unclear. Now, the actual discussion about, you know, what does she want? Does she like herself? Her answer is pretty good. But importantly, it's not a new direction for that discussion. It's a recapitulation of what our narrator told us. Namely, like him, she sees the world in terms of good and evil, in terms of the face that she wears in public and the person she is underneath. She's a pretty girl with a darkness in her, or at least that seems to be the most logical interpretation of what's going on here. She doesn't have some sort of competing philosophy, some sort of competing perspective to present here. These are just facets of Bradbury's truth. We are not seeing multiple gemstones lined up, each multifaceted, each fascinating in their own way. Each of these characters is just a refraction of Bradbury's message, of his morality, of his speech. They're all talking his language, they're all believing his ideas, they're all emphasizing his point. And in some sense they only exist as tools, as ciphers as a way for him to communicate whatever idea he thinks he needs to communicate. And it's not even clear what that is, besides 
apparently were longing for the appearance of Hollywood that used to be, but at the same time reckoning with the ugliness of what it actually was, I suppose. If there's something, then that's it. But it's real hard to match that with the substance of what's gone on before. And some of that is because it's a murder mystery. We don't have the end. We don't get to see how all the pieces fit together at this point. We're left in the dark, quite literally, because that's how murder mysteries are supposed to work. Like, we're not going to figure everything out, and presumably we're not going to figure out the themes until the very end. But what Bradbury is showing us is a bunch of people living in the past in a novel that sounds like it's being written by a person trying to live in the past. Bradbury seems to be falling into his own trap here, reminiscing about a world that stopped existing a long time ago and getting upset about that world for not existing, even though it's long gone. So if the moral here is to not do that, Bradbury's... It's really hard to say that he has escaped that, that he's learned his own lesson. Just as, you know, I have questions about whether or not he's turned into the sort of empty commercial writer that he criticized in Fahrenheit 451, you know, if he's not writing the same sort of vanilla tapioca that he was, you know, angry about once before, I'm wondering now if he isn't caught in that same nostalgia cycle that he's apparently trying to fight against. Now, I'm not going to read the rest because... She just, like, disappears and is gone, and there are a couple of, you know, moments that might resonate with these themes, but, again, it's real hard to sort of get a, a bead on what's going on here. Um, what I want to emphasize, what I do want to take away from this, um, is I want to look at, I want to appreciate where Bradbury has gone from his origins, and I want to try and wrap our brains around what's changed for him, for the world, for Hollywood, for all of these things. It's not terribly cogent as Bradbury produces it. And I suspect that my lecture has not been terribly cogent either. I'm still wrestling with it, and I'm still grumpy about it, and I'm still mad, and I'm still trying to parse. Um, and I'm hoping that we'll have something more cogent for the next lecture, and the final one in this series. But at the very least, these are the themes that keep coming up. These are the questions I keep asking, and these are the things I want us to really think about as we close out this discussion. What has Bradbury become? Is his wild, evocative, and yet somehow insubstantial language a decent substitute for the substance that he used to offer? Are these evocative images of men crushed by newspapers and tiny houses acceptable as a, you know, an offering from a great writer in lieu of the things that have been sacrificed? If Bradbury is stripped of his morality, as seems to be the case here, is the work that he produces still meaningful? Is it still worth reading? Is... Bradbury of the 1950s, the only Bradbury that anyone should care about? Because on some level, I kind of transgressed that question when I initially set out the readings. I wanted to read something Wicked This Way Comes Again, and I wanted to read Let's All Kill Constance again, and I wanted to talk about it, and I wanted to just fit it together and come up with an idea of who this guy actually is. And I think to some degree we have. 
I think to some degree at this point, now we see the things that Bradbury is wrestling with. His own fear for his own mortality, his reckoning with his love of the past, his sort of reckoning with his own style and the sort of competing desires of, you know, making something that is shiny and exciting and, you know, fast-paced and, and filled with, like, fun phrases and, and following the language wherever it leads him. Or alternatively, if that means that he's fallen into the same trap of the writers that he was criticizing once upon a time. If now Bradbury is perhaps a champion of the insubstantial commercial art, the art as escape, art as distraction, is he writing vanilla tapioca at this point? Or is he holding out that, you know, we're talking about mortality, we're talking about things that are gone, things that are sad, as the last fig leaf of respectability in front of his critics? Bradbury gets very grumpy when people challenge his writing. We've talked about that. We've talked about how badly he hates censorship. And we've talked about how that will to self-censor is dangerous in American culture. That's the central conceit of Fahrenheit 451. The fact that it wasn't the government that shut off the, the book publishers. It was us ourselves giving up on things that made us reminiscent feel sad in favor of just feeling happy all the time and being presented with insubstantial literature and insub insubstantial storytelling as a sort of palliative to get us through our days. I'm wondering if Bradbury's crossed that line, or I'm wondering if Bradbury's missed that transition, and I'm wondering if Bradbury is a product of a culture that has become Fahrenheit 451 without noticing. If he's gone from siding with Montaigne to siding with Beatty. Or alternatively, if he still thinks he's on the side of Montague, it's just a nuance that I'm failing to pick up here. It's tough to sort of navigate around all these ideas. There's a lot going on here. And maybe this isn't the greatest way to do that, to sort of look at the book that he's written in the last stages of his life and ask these questions. But I'm not entirely sure how else to discuss them, how else to confront them. I wanted to talk about Bradbury and the career of an artist over 50 years. The conclusion I'm rapidly coming to is that they're practically two different artists. They're practically one as the evil mirror image of the other. The same crimes that Bradbury the Younger hated have become the crimes Bradbury the Elder is committing. And yet, Bradbury the Elder doesn't seem aware. It's an interesting dynamic to sort of pick apart. We have to decide. We have to figure this out. And that's the question I want to sort of leave us on as we approach the last phase of our project. Did Bradbury become his own villain? Or does he have some explanation for how he's remained consistent in his dislike of superficiality despite what appears to be superficiality here in the later stages of his life. Has he succeeded? Does he have something to tell us? Is there a distinction here that we're missing? Or has he failed? Has he become what he hated? Has his great works 
actually shown why his later works are not great. So, we'll, for next time, we will finish Let's All Kill Constance and close our discussion of Bradbury, and hopefully we'll be able to come up with some kind of answer to these questions. At any rate, I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.